This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 262nd episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a new dinosaur from British Columbia, some more details on dinosaur tooth replacement rates, as well as a couple stories from around the world. We also have an interview with Dr. Philip Mannion, Dr. Steve Porapat, and Adele Pentland. A bonus interview. Yeah, we interviewed all three of them when we were in Winton, Australia. So we talked to Dr. Philip Mannion and Dr. Steve Poropet about sauropods. And then we, in our bonus interview, we talked to Adele Pentland about the pterosaur that she named. Yeah, we did all that in Winton, Australia, which was one of the first places we stopped in the outback. And we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Magyarosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, the people who helped us make it out into the Outback in Australia to do these interviews. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pascoe, Gabe, Courtney, TRX Dinosaurs, and Michael. And also, I want to say... We mailed out the postcards to everybody who gave us an address, so you should keep an eye out on your mailbox to make sure that you don't miss it. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your support, and I can't believe it's we're getting to the end of another year already. We've done a lot because of our patrons. Yeah, so if you want to join this group of people and get in on the next postcard or the next thing that we send out, which is likely a piece of art from Sabrina, I think the milestone for that is 160 patrons. We're in the 130s now, so if like 25 people more join, then everybody's going to get a piece of paleo art made by Sabrina. Not a professional paleo art drawer, but <laughs> I think she's a very good artist, so it'll be really cool when it is all finished. She needs some encouragement, though. So if you join the Patreon, that will help a lot. Jumping into the news, our first article was written by Michael Emick and others and published in PLOS One, and it's all about tooth replacement rates. I think it's timely since we were just talking about Tristan the T-Rex's teeth, and this article just came out the day that we're recording this episode, so it's pretty fortunate. It's as timely as we can get. Yeah. Although it will come out for a few more days. So yeah, podcasting. Well, yeah, our episode, the article already came out. Yes. Unfortunately, this study didn't specifically test T-Rex, although they did 
sort of included in their study just for comparison's sake. But what they did test was Majungasaurus, Allosaurus, and Ceratosaurus directly by doing histology. And then they said, quote, we created the largest dental histology and CT dataset for any theropod dinosaur, sectioning and scanning over a dozen toothed elements of Majungasaurus and several additional elements from the other two genera, end quote. In order to do this, they looked at the lines of von Ebner, as they're called, which is the tooth version of lines of arrested growth. But with lags or lines of arrested growth, we assume that there's this line about once a year, whereas with von Ebner lines, we assume that the lines are created every day. So it's like a daily version of a lag. It's an interesting name. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's named after a dude named von Ebner. <laughs> Did he have really great teeth? I think he was good at studying them. Mm. <laughs> so in order to do that, it's just like studying lags. You cut a tooth in half, or otherwise section out a little piece of it, and then you count the lines to get the number of days old it is. And these are obviously much closer spaced together than lags because they're laid down every day. They're on the order of microns apart, so very close. And then they did a regression of tooth age versus length in order to include teeth that they couldn't cut into, including some other dinosaur species as well. Interestingly, I think it's important to note that the age of the tooth isn't really the same as just counting up lags, where you look at the number of lags and you say, okay, there's 10 lines of arrested growth, so I was about 10 years old, you know, possibly subtracting for any that have disappeared over the years. Because if you're thinking about teeth, you're usually wanting to know about teeth replacement. And the teeth actually start growing when they're down in the jaw or up in the skull, <laughs> if they're coming in from the top. And they grow for quite a while before they're exposed. So just looking at the age of the tooth doesn't give you a lot of information about how often they're replaced. What you have to do is you have to look at consecutive teeth in the replacement series and how many days difference in age they are. So if there's one that's 10 days old and then there's one that's 50 days old that's you know closer to erupting out of the jaw, then it looks like the tooth replacement rate was about 40 days because that's the series that's setting up for replacement. Based on this, they came up with a bunch of tooth replacement rates. And like I said, they directly sampled Majungasaurus, which was only 56 days. Allosaurus, which was 104 days, and Ceratosaurus, which was 107 days. So pretty quick, I think. Yeah, especially compared to us. Yeah, oh, that's for sure. So we're, what, like eight years and we only do it once? <laughs> <laughs> Something to that effect. The slowest of the dinosaurs was T-Rex, which is just over two years. So I think it was like 770 days or something. Very slow growing. But very big teeth. Yes. The fastest was Nigerosaurus, which was only 14 days. Wow. So every 14 days, it was getting a new tooth. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Sauropods had a pretty wide range in general. Mementosaurus was 98 days, Giraffatitan, 92 days, Camarasaurus, 62 days, and Diplodocus was down by 35 days. So the range was 14 days to 98 days. Pretty big range, but even 98 days, that's really rapid replacement of teeth. Mm-hmm. Triceratops was about 83 days, so it was kind of in the longer end of the sauropod range. And hadrosaurs were a little bit shorter, around two months. Massospondylus was 24 days, so another really quick one. 
And just for fun, Deinonychus was 290 days. So again, pretty long. They said Silurosaurs in general were at the longer end, as you definitely see with Deinonychus and T-Rex. In general, they said that herbivores replace their teeth faster than carnivores, and they say that might be because <laughs> carnivores are eating softer foods. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fun way to put it. Yeah, because plants, you know, they got all that fiber in them. They're rough. You got to chew them up. Not all of them, though, because T-Rex was a bone crusher. Exactly. That's a, that's a really good point. They did talk about how T-Rex had a super slow replacement rate, which is weird because it was eating bone and you figure that's pretty tough. Yeah. But they pointed out that it seemed to have put a lot of time into growing these really large and robust teeth that mm. just were less likely to break. They're nice and reinforced. Yeah, exactly. So they could take the impact of this bone crushing. And it wasn't like they were just scraping against each other all the time. It was more like breaking a stick over your leg sort of thing. You don't need to replace your leg when you're doing that. It just needs to be strong. <laughs> That's but, basically everything about T-Rex. Yes. But weirdly, on the other end of the spectrum was Majungasaurus at 56 days. And they said that it might be so quick because they were also eating bone. So the bone eaters are both the fastest and the slowest tooth replacements among the theropods that they looked at. So super weird. They think maybe it had increased wear by the way it was eating the bone. So we've talked before about how there are Majungasaurus teeth wear marks on other Majungasaurus bones as well as herbivore dinosaur bones. So if they were just scraping their teeth across bone all the time, I guess maybe that's wearing it down quickly. But in general, herbivores replace their teeth faster than carnivores. And they said that they, quote, infer approximately monthly tooth replacement rates as the ancestral dinosaurian condition, end quote, which I think is weird because all of the herbivores in this study were around, you know, the 30 to 60 day mark in general, whereas the carnivores were higher up. But we think that carnivores in general were the first dinosaurs. So these early carnivores much, must have had more herbivore-like <laughs> tooth replacement rates, or at least for later dinosaurs. The most interesting thing to me was that they said, quote, within Dinosauria, there is no relationship between body mass and tooth replacement rate and no trends in replacement rate over time, end quote. So even though the later dinosaurs, at least in the carnivorous category, seem to take a little bit longer to replace their teeth, I guess it was all over the place. There wasn't a trend towards teeth taking longer to be replaced. And at the same time, T-Rex, even though it was big and it had teeth that took a long time to replace, you also have Deinonychus, which is pretty small, and it took a long time to replace its teeth. And then you got something like Nigerosaurus, which is huge, and it replaces its teeth every 14 days. <laughs> so it's, it's really weird. <laughs> it all just kind of comes down to how quickly they were wearing out their teeth, I guess. And up next, we've got our new dinosaur from British Columbia. This one was written by Victoria Arbor and David Evans, published in Pure J. And Victoria also wrote her discovery up on her blog, Pseudoplocephalus, which we'll also have a link to in the show notes because it's always easier to read the summary version <laughs> than trying to get through a whole peer review journal article. But this article is all about the dinosaur formerly described as the small ornithischian buster, but now it's officially named Ferrosaurus sustutensis. And Ferrosaurus means iron lizard because it was found next to some railway tracks. And 
later on we'll be talking to Adele about Pharaoh Draco, the Iron Pterosaur, which also named after iron. Lots of iron in this episode. Yes. Although Pharaoh Draco was not found anywhere near railroad tracks, just has a bunch of iron in the fossil. The species name Sustutensis comes from the Sustut Basin in northern British Columbia, where it was found, and also the Sustut River, which it was found near. The bones were found nearly 50 years ago. They returned in 2017 to look for some more bones, but they didn't find any more of Ferrosaurus at least, but they did find a couple other bones and some helpful stratigraphic data because the bones were originally donated, so they didn't have good records to go along with them. Ferrosaurus is a leptoceratopsid, so a little bit more specific than small ornithischian, which was the previous description, and it's a very close relative of leptoceratops, less so montanoceratops. And if you don't know either of those, you can think of a protoceratops with an even smaller frill and also no horns, so a little tiny ceratopsian. It might have had that cool series of protofeathers down the top of its tail. They didn't depict it that way in the description, but they didn't have a whole lot to go by, so I think they just left them off out of simplicity. It was probably small frilled, like I said, but there weren't any skull bones found either. Basically what they found was the hind leg and foot, the shoulder blade, and the radius and ulna of one of the front legs. And even within those fragmentary remains, several of those bones are incomplete. So we don't have a ton of information about this guy. Buster sounds hard to describe. He's all busted up. Yeah. <laughs> that might be why he's called Buster, I don't know. We think the Ferrosaurus lived about 67 to 68 million years ago, which puts it in the very late Cretaceous. With such fragmentary remains, it's hard to know its overall size, but by my very rough estimations that they would probably frown at because they didn't make any estimations in the paper. <laughs> it looks like it's about one and a half meters or five feet long and about two feet or 60 centimeters tall. So yeah, it's pretty small. Maybe dog-sized might be a good description. Buster's also a good name for a dog. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That could be another way that they found it, if Buster the dog stumbled upon it. There's all sorts of reasons it could be named Buster. As I hinted at at the beginning of the show, it's, quote, the first unique dinosaur species reported from British Columbia, end quote. Although with Victoria Arbor there now, who knows? Maybe there'll be way more dinosaur discoveries popping up. If you're interested in seeing Ferrosaurus, it's on display at the Royal British Columbia Museum's Pocket Gallery, and that's in Victoria, until February 2020. So if you want to see it, make sure you get there soon. Yeah, that's not very long. No. I think it's one of those rotating exhibits where they put things in temporarily and then replace them. Or maybe they want to study it some more, so they need to get it out of the display case. Yeah. That's cool that it's on display. Yeah, I really like that. I know the Royal Tyrol Museum does that a lot, too, where they put the newest stuff out. That's really fun, because otherwise you can wait like a decade, and unless you're a paleontologist who can go back in the collections, you never get to see some of the stuff. Speaking of new stuff on display, though... The Cleveland Museum of Natural History in Ohio has a new exhibit, and that's called Ultimate Dinosaurs. That's going on from now until April 26th, so it's a little bit longer. Uh, these dinosaurs evolved in isolation in what's now South America, Madagascar, and other parts of Africa, and it shows how they're different from their North American relatives. We may have actually talked about this before. It was made by the Science Museum of Minnesota. So the exhibit talks about Pangaea and their 16 life-size casts, and they use augmented reality to show off the specimens. And dinosaurs include 
Gigantosaurus, Eoraptor, Suchomimus, Majungasaurus, and Repetosaurus. Nice. I love some good augmented reality. Yeah, I don't know uh, too many details, but I'm sure it's fun. And in Los Angeles, in California, the Natural History Museum is having an Antarctic Dinosaurs Family Day on January 4th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. They have their exhibition Antarctic Dinosaurs going on now until January 5th. So I think it's like kind of a last hurrah. It's been there for a while. It's a pretty cool exhibit, though. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Philip Mannion, Steve Porapat a.k.a. Sorapat, <laughs> and Adele Pentland. The first two we recorded at the museum, and then we recorded the interview with Adele at a bar later that night. And the bar said that it was open until late, but it shut its lights down on us at about 9.30 p.m. Yeah. or so. Luckily, we'd finished the interview while it was still <laughs> light. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, while the lights were still on. And this was all in Winton, We went to the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum earlier in the day and did the full tour. It's a really awesome museum, and we have a video up on our YouTube channel showing the museum off. We also stopped on the way at Hewenden, which is kind of halfway in between Townsville and Winton, and they have a Mudaburrosaurus, but not a lot of other dinosaur stuff, so there wasn't enough there to do an interview or really make a video out of, but it's definitely a cool stop too. And we've posted about it on our Instagram. Yes. 
And as usual, we also have an extended version for our patrons of this interview, just like I think for at least the last two interviews we also had, but I forgot to mention. So if you want to hear more about these dinosaurs and about their work, then definitely check out our Patreon. But without further ado, here is the interview with Philip Mannion and Steve Porapat. We are joined today by Dr. Steve Porapat from Swinburg University of Technology in Melbourne, and he's also a research associate at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum, and he's been here for the last nine years working on all sorts of great stuff. And we're also joined by Dr. Phil Mannion, who is a lecturer at the University College London, and with Steve, he's co-authored a series of sauropod papers, including Savannosaurus. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And so we're at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum, which is a really fun place to be. <laughs> Especially if you like sauropods, like oh, Sabrina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we might as well talk about Savannosaurus since we just mentioned it. Could you tell us a little bit about what describing that was like, what you found? Um, well, I guess the, the first thing was to try and work out uh, exactly how much of Savannosaurus we had. Uh, so getting it from the field into a position where it was actually describable was a long process. It took about 10 years of hard work from volunteers in the laboratory here and also back at Belmont Station where Age of Dinosaurs really was conceived. But yeah, once that was done, we needed to jigsaw puzzle back all the bones together because many of them had been fragmented into several pieces. We did that. We worked out uh, back in 2012, actually. We started doing that collaboration and um, worked out that we had most of the uh, thoracic series, so the dorsal vertebrae, uh, lots of ribs, most of the sac uh, the pelvis and the sacrum, and then probably you know, most of the bones from the forelimb and the sternal plates. So you could get a fairly good sense of the, the midsection of the animal. One vertebra from the neck, four from the tail. That was it beyond that midsection. Looking at all that, we described the anatomy in detail. That hasn't actually been published yet, but that's one thing we're hoping to get out uh, in the next year or two. Um, but that was the foundation for working out where Savannosaurus sat on the sauropod family tree. With Phil uh, and Paul Upchurch, we scored the characters together, worked out that Savannosaurus is probably a basal titanosaur, and as a result, that suggested to us that, well, because its closest relatives on the, on the tree were from South America and also less directly from Asia, uh, that there was probably a link between those two continents, Antarctica being the obvious and, and you know, the very biogeographically clear choice, uh, and that these sauropods could probably walk freely between those continents around 105 million years ago. Wow. So back then, I know the sea level was generally higher. How mm -hmm. would they be walking? Are there just periods where the water was lower and then they could walk during that time? Or No, uh, Australia was firmly adhered to uh, Antarctica still oh, at nice. that point. So the Southern Ocean had started to open, but from west to east. So there was a lingering connection between Victoria and Tasmania and then via that into Antarctica. And same with uh, South America. It was slightly further south. So the Antarctic Peninsula and, and South America at times, there were probably a series of islands, but at times, animals could probably fairly freely get through that little corridor. Uh, so, it would have been a high latitude dispersal, probably higher than 60 degrees south. Uh, and that would have meant that if the world was cooler, these sauropods might not have liked high latitudes. But when it was warmer, they would probably quite happily use that migration route. Oh, cool. With that Savannosaurus, was that the most exciting thing you found? Or have you found other stuff that you also really... <laughs> Uh, in the last three years, we have made a series of amazing discoveries out here. 
Um, I've been privileged to be involved in all of them, even though I haven't made any of the discoveries myself. I've just been there <laughs> to basically help on the digs and to help interpret things once they're out of the ground and, and prepped in the laboratory. But at the recent Society of Vertebrate Paleontology Conference in Brisbane, myself and Phil and Paul Upchurch and also David Elliott here from the museum, uh, we presented a talk that announced a few of these new discoveries. So some of them I can talk a bit more freely about than others, but um, probably the one that uh, I can talk about quite freely because we have done a press release, at least announcing its discovery before, is a sauropod we've nicknamed Judy. It's an amazingly complete sauropod individual, uh, not just for Australia really, but worldwide I'd say, uh, because we have almost the complete neck vertebral series, almost the complete thoracic series as well, we have a sacrum, how complete it is, we don't know, it's still in a jacket. Uh, but then we've got most of the bones from the left fore and hind limb as well. So it amounts to a huge proportion of the skeleton, way more complete than any sauropod ever found in Australia before. And if we can work out what species it pertains to, it is going to really fill in a lot of gaps in our understanding of the anatomy of that particular species. Even if it's not something we already know, it'll be an amazingly complete sauropod for Australia full stop. And then I guess the other thing that is really exciting about it is the fact that it potentially preserves gut contents. Uh, we have not demonstrated that unequivocally, so I'm not going to stand by that interpretation <laughs> just yet. But it was actually really good. At the SVP meeting, I met Karen Chin, mm -hmm. who's an expert in fossil coprolites and whatnot. So she has agreed to collaborate on that, and uh, we hope to really start forging that research ahead very soon. Cool. You're going to have to get her out here in the summer then to look at it? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. I, I wouldn't actually, you know, I'm surprised Phil's come out here at all. You know, being a Brit, this, this sort of weather just must let me like stepping into an oven or something. Uh, it's it's baking out there. We, you know, we're getting warmer going into the car to get lunch than it is just outside. I'm also um, surprised for myself. <laughs> yeah, it's Phil's been nodding. <laughs> um, no, what we'll probably do um, with all that stuff, because we have, it's it's... It almost occupied a two by two meter square area in the pit because instead of just being a big lump, it's flattened out into a layer. It's as if the gut sort of burst and then formed this discrete layer <laughs> in the site between the thorax and the pelvis. And as a result, it's actually all about 10 to 20 centimeters thick, which means we can reassemble the entire section and then synchrotron scan all of it and reassemble it digitally and also analyze it digitally. So what we would do is synchrotron scan several blocks of it, work out which ones have the most uh, exciting stuff inside, and then send some of those pieces to Colorado uh, so that Karen Chin can make thin sections of them and actually look at the internal structure of the possible gut contents and see if that's what they are. Wow. Is the potential for gut contents what brought you here, Phil? Uh, no, I mean, I guess initially I came along primarily for the SVP meeting that Steve was talking about, but Australia is so far for, for me, like you to, to visit, uh, I kind of wanted to do some research whilst here. And so thankfully Steve and the team here have been finding lots of great new specimens in the last few years. So there's something new for me to do. I managed to skip all the kind of hard work of actually like <laughs> picking the specimens up, preparing them, piecing together the jigsaws. I get to do the easy bit where I just look at the anatomy and say, can you help me with this piece over here or lift this piece over there? So it's, yeah, it's quite nice, my part. So no, the gut contents is really exciting. That is not remotely my field of research. So I'm quite happy to go to trust someone else's sort of opinion in that regard. And it is looking like they may well be that. But yeah, to some extent, that's going to re require like a paleobotanist, a Karen in this case, to actually sort of confirm that or, or suggest that, you know, maybe it's something else. But it does look sort of fairly convincing so far. So yeah, it's very exciting because... As far as we're aware, I don't think there's any even 
sort of unambiguous, sorry, any ambiguous evidence for uh, gut contents with sauropods, not even things where people just found like a plant fossil very close to a sauropod, for instance. Mm. So this really would be, you know, the first time when not only we have something that really looks like it goes together, but actually looks like gut contents and identifiable gut contents, I think is probably the most exciting thing. It's one thing just to say there are bits of plants inside and we don't know what they are, but this actually looks like something we could probably presumably identify to a species, or yeah. I imagine. Quite likely. Uh, so yeah, so that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice to visit Australia. It's nice to come out <laughs> here. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool country to visit, to see the animals out here as well. So, you know, it's a great opportunity to, to travel and, and see like a, the other side of the world, essentially. Of course, yeah. And you're also a sauropod expert. I am, yeah. Well, that's what I like to call myself. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, get, I guess like a large part of my role in this initially started in 2012 when um, I visited to primarily just look at the published material. So I didn't actually anticipate working on any of these specimens. I just came along really to study the anatomy. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a large part of what I do. Uh, I study material pretty much all around the world. I think now I've been on every continent apart from Antarctica at least twice to study uh, wow. sauropod material. Nice. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty tough job. Um, <laughs> forced to travel all to these countries and you know experience their culture and eat their food and drink their alcohol. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, so basically I came along and I'd, I guess at that point, I was a few years out, my, out of my PhD at that stage. So I'd started sort of seeing quite a lot of material and that sort of increased over the years. So I guess myself and, and Paul Upchurch that Steve uh, mentioned earlier, who is a colleague at my institute, actually, in fact, my boss, um, <laughs> the two of us have basically been working together a lot over the last decade, I guess, and seeing a lot of material all around the world. I think that's what we probably primarily added to the project is essentially having actually seen a lot more material for comparative purposes. Mm. It's one thing to be able to sort of identify the elements, which Steve was entirely doing. And, you know, apart from some very subtle sort of disagreements, which we're still going back mm-hmm. and forth on, we kind of all agree <laughs> that, you know, this is a pubis, this is an issue. But it's seeing those kind of like slightly finer details that's kind of hard to not to, without seeing specimens, it's hard not to really sort of get that kind of level of detail. And that's really sort of, I think, our main contribution to the project. And then Steve has also been, has joined us on, on trips. So we've been to... Yeah. Argentina together twice now? Three times. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, so actually we're starting to look at material together and we actually published uh, together on an Argentinian specimen last year actually with, uh, with some Argentinian colleagues too. Which one was that? That was Mendoza. Mendoza. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so Mendoza-saurus. Uh, so it's a big revision of uh, an existing taxon named in yeah. 2003, but basically provided this really sort of long monographic description of it, which involved lots of uh, trying to determine lots of sort of quite sort of very weirdly crushed elements and trying mm. to determine what they were. Yeah, that sounds like a nightmarish. They were like sort of pancaked almost, and I guess you know it sort of makes sense. Mendoza being right up against the Andes, those formations have probably been bent and buckled. So mm. yeah, a lot of the bones were just really distorted and hard to interpret. So what's special about the Australian sauropods? Um, <laughs> we're finding that they show. Sort of primitive features in their sternal plates. They show sort of uh, primitive features in their tail vertebrae, but then their their limb bones often show quite advanced features, sort of more t- titanosaurian features. Mm. The brain case seems to be sort of fairly basal within titanosaurus. They just got a sort of swathe <laughs> of characters that don't really allow them to be placed anywhere really nicely. And so, of course, having more complete specimens like Judy will help. I think what I'm one of the hypothesis that I'm possibly leaning towards is that rather than them being true titanosaurs, they might be some spondylins that got into Australia before India and Madagascar and Africa broke away and then they've just done their own thing here and maybe converged with titanosaurs in some ways but 
not necessarily actually have been true titanosaurs. They're just pseudo-titanosaurs. So it's going to be something that we can unpack with uh, a lot more new data. Um, And, of course, you know, with Phil continually updating his phylogenetic tree, working out where all the sauropods sit relative to each other. But, yeah, for now, um, of the three, Savannosaurus is the weirdest. I'm biased, (laughs) but he is. He's so broad. (laughs) Just... Yeah, extremely wide hips compared to body size. I mean, he's only an animal about 12 to 13 metres long, but the hips are minimum one metre wide, and that's without the ilia at the top, which would have been even wider than the fused pubes and ischia. So he's got a really broad gut. It's almost like a a sauropodon hippo. Um, (laughs) Not that we want to necessarily say he was semi-aquatic, but that's the sort of build we're going with there, don't body shame it. <laughs> I'm not. I swear. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Critically, also prior to the sort of discovery uh, in 2000 or the publication in 2009 of some of these new species, we almost knew nothing about the sauropods mm. of Australia, mm. and that really means we almost knew nothing about the southern hemisphere outside of South America for a lot of this time. The African record is really only sort of growing at a, at a similar rate here, and so far, their newer specimens are not quite as complete as these. Mm-hmm. So we actually had very little idea of what's going on for half of the southern hemisphere for, mm. for millions of years so ultimately wh- whatever these species end up being they're kind of a really important sort of spatial gap that we're filling in mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's kind of critical just to understanding essentially what this clade is doing so much of what we think and know about so many fossil species is based on the north american record or at least the sort of northern hemisphere record and this really adds like a critical kind of gap that we've not mm. had before nice so if you guys could find anything like what's your dream find in the formation mm. All right, so, so it's interesting you asked that because Steve obviously had a, a wish list of things he wanted to find uh, in this formation. So, I, so I've exposed talk, post talk. I've explicitly asked him uh, to find a Rebecca-saurid, mm. uh, which is a clade that's not been found here, but it kind of has very similar sort of like biogeographic patterns as some of the titanosaurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also to find a Nodosuchian crocodilomorph, which also has similar biogeographic patterns. Mm. And ultimately, yeah, I've requested that he tries harder and finds these <laughs> yeah. well, soon. Work harder. <laughs> yeah, I, I should, shouldn't I? Um, I mean, yes, I, I did this wish list at SVP for what we wanted from the sauropod record. And as yeah, we got most of it. Still don't have a sauropod back foot of any description, like a few metatarsals here and that's it. But um, look, as far as other organisms are concerned, yeah, a Rebachysaurid would be absolutely amazing. A more diverse crocodilomorph fauna in in total would be phenomenal because at the moment we have, well, there's unpublished evidence of one taxon and then there's Isisfordia and that's pretty much it, but we know they were way more diverse. But from the winter formation, ankylosaurs, ornithopods, theropods other than Australovenator, and especially with the theropods, I'd say a Carcharodontosaurian, a Spinosaurid, uh, and a belly sword. These are all taxa that could be here, but despite two decades of pretty intensive digging from the Australian Age of Dinosaurs team, no evidence whatsoever. Maybe it wasn't the right environment. It's the right time period, but they just might not have liked it here. And um, I dare say that obviously one one fossil will change our understanding, uh, just as it has with Ferradraco, for example, the pterosaur that was described this year. But yeah, not even a tooth of any of those animals yet. Uh. It, it's it's enough to lower hope a little bit, but not completely to eliminate it. I was going to ask if you found teeth because there's like spinosaur teeth popping up all yeah. over the place, but none in Australia. Not here, no, not at all. Um, and even well, the only spinosaur that had been erected in in Australia on the basis of a cervical vertebra, I recently sunk <laughs> as a megaraptorid. So yeah, um, it, we don't even have a record of them at all from any element. Ditto carcharodontosaurs, ditto abelisaurs. 
and yeah, most crop groups as well. So I guess the way I've thought about the Australian record in general, not just in the Winton formation, is that despite 30 to 40 years of good collecting in Victoria and now 20, good, 20 years of good collecting up here in Queensland, we still are in very much the discovery phase uh, with our fossil record from the Mesozoic because our Cretaceous and Jurassic records compared to the rest of the world are really quite poor. Mm. Um, that in some ways is limited by the availability of rocks across Australia. There are just you know some t- time periods that are just not represented because we've had so little mountain building that they've just not been brought back to the surface, even if they exist and, and we know of them. So... You know, it's possible that we might get to a point where our fossil record can't really get that much better. We're just building incrementally. But I don't think we've come anywhere near that position yet. And I guess it's possible we might not have sampled the right environments for some of these groups. Yep. So Steve mentioned the Victoria mm. uh, record there. There's no sauropods there yeah, at, no, all. at all, despite thousands of bones being discovered. Literally, yep. Not even that's a single tooth. That's all ornithopods pretty much, right? A uh, fair few theropods as well. Lung, but turtles, turtles are the next most abundant after ornithopods. The odd bit of croc in the west, the odd bit of temnospondyl in the east, and, and otherwise it's lungfish tooth plates and it's a plesiosaur. So it's, it's, a, it's a diverse and varied fauna, but dominated by ornithopods and turtles. And we know sauropods were in Australia around about this time yep. uh, from other sort of quite fragmentary specimens. So ultimately it seems that they actually weren't living there because it presumably was too cold for them. They did not mm. like those conditions. Mm. So it's possible we just not have sa- sampled the, you know, the right environment to actually sample some of the, some of the wish list. Yeah. You've got to find one that froze to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> went to the wrong place at the wrong time yeah. <laughs> yeah the other problem I guess is that a lot of the Aramanga Basin which is what we're seeing on the Winton Formation is nice and forming this sort of icing on the cake I guess but most of it's marine you're not going to find dinosaurs in it generally speaking unless they're bloat and float carcasses mm. so there are obviously amazing examples like Kumbarasaurus and Mataburasaurus but yeah mostly it's marine reptiles and the odd bit of coastal pterosaurial bird we may just not have the rocks available to, to really drastically improve certain parts of our fossil record. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Is it just a little below that is when it would be terrestrial again? Yeah, you can you can definitely get to terrestrial Jurassic, like even latest Jurassic deposits. So the same age as you'd find Brachiosaurus, Giraffatide, and Diplodocus, Apatosaurus, or Brontosaurus. You know, <laughs> they, they're all here, they're the right age rocks, but very seldom are they exposed well at the surface. And even if they are, they're not necessarily that well explored and they're almost certainly deeply, deeply weathered. And so finding anything, unless you've got a fresh cut, is going to be very, very hard. Mm. So for our listeners, uh, for each of you, where is the best place to go for them to find out more about you and your work? I mean, primarily through sort of publications. Most of those are sort of available on like, uh, I guess, my, my UCL sort of websites. Yeah, and I guess there are some po- popular articles out there as well, but primarily, I guess, through the literature. Uh, and through this podcast, hopefully, as well. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks. For me, I have a website, which is stephenporopat.weebly.com. It's got a list of all the popular and technical publications that I've produced or co-produced. But otherwise, the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum does sell its own journal. Uh, it's up to 16 issues because it's been running for 16 years. And um, I edit that now, and I've contributed to it almost once a year on average for the last eight years or so. You do know the editor. I, I do, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty easy in, but you know, uh, I guess I'm always in bed with myself, aren't I? So, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so I mean, that's probably a, a more accessible means to find out about some of the work I've done because there's, there's things in there on Savannasaurus, for example, and on our yearly digs written mainly by David Elliott. But also, I mean, it's just a good 
introduction to Australian paleontology in general as well, because pretty much every major discovery or site that has been made in the last century or so is covered in there in one shape, well, one way, shape or form and in a very engaging way. So, yeah, little plug for Age of Dinosaurs. Yeah. If yeah. you head to AustralianAgeofDinosaurs.com, they have a shop where you can actually buy that online or become a member and get those journals at a discounted rate. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, yeah, taking pleasure. time out of your research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's fine. <laughs> Thanks again, Philip and Steve, for chatting with us about sauropods. And now we're going to jump right into the interview with Adele. We're chatting this evening with Adele Pentland, who is a PhD candidate at Swinburne University of Technology and a research associate at Australian Age of Dinosaurs. And she also recently described and named Draco, a pterosaur, which normally we don't talk about pterosaurs, but it was too cool not to. So <laughs> It's also great when you're in the area. And you got to see it at the museum, so, yes, you know, why too. not? <laughs> exactly. So, can you tell us a little bit about... Pharaoh Draco? Yes, Pharaoh yeah. Draco. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, the specimen was found in April 2017, and it was a total fluke find. It was made by Bob Elliott, who is a local grazier, and he's been involved with Age of Dinosaurs because he didn't have a say in the matter, because his <laughs> father... And mother founded the museum, and we're very thankful for that because Bob is really great at finding fossils now. And he was spraying for burr in a creek, so uh, burr is a pest species of weed. And he came across these bones, and uh, he found part of a lower jaw, and he found some isolated wing bones um, that were incomplete as well. And within one fell swoop, he had found Australia's most complete pterosaur. Since he's sort of seen, you know, what museum folk do, um, and he's been part of our digs for a number of years, he took photos of the specimens where they were, he flagged the area, and then he collected them and took them back with him. And then, yeah, they worked out that it was a pterosaur. At that stage, I wasn't yet involved on the project, but living in a small town, it's um, not long before you start to hear about these things. Um, also handy when you're affiliated with the museum itself. And yeah, then we were out doing a dig at the end of May. So it was very soon after that we um, were trying to find the rest of the pterosaur. And yeah, I was helping out on the dig as well. After that process, we managed to recover uh, more parts of the skull, five neck bones, five cervical vertebrae, uh, and then some elements from both the left and right wing. So most of what we have is from the left wing and then two bones from the right. And then all up, it's about 10 to 11% complete. So it doesn't sound super exciting, but uh, it is when you consider just how poor the Australian pterosaur record has been before that. Uh, so before this find... Everything else in Australia was isolated or was a partial bone, so it wasn't even one complete bone. Mm -hmm. And they had been found on their own. Uh, most of them are found in Queensland, which is we, where we are currently. And then some other bits and pieces have been found in Western Australia, in New South Wales, where they can find opalized fossils, which you guys will get to see for yourselves very soon, and on the Otway Coast in Victoria. Yeah, before this, we had only had two pterosaur species named from Australia uh, based on two partial skulls. So, yeah, it's been really wonderful to be able to contribute something a little bit more complete, albeit half complete would have been nice, but, you know, we'll just have to try harder next time. <laughs> <laughs> 
So how much did you said Bob found? Yeah, so ooh, that's a good question. I think he found maybe three wing bones and then two pieces of the lower jaw. And then when we did the dig, we obviously yeah found um must have been radius. So one metacarpal, that's two. Wristbone, that's three, and then bits of the wing phalanx, we'll call that four. Four additional wing bones, and then I forgot to mention um, some of the small finger bones from the hand, which is pretty cool, and then, yeah, uh, more parts of the upper jaw. So we only had maybe one part of the upper jaw that Bob originally found because um, one block is actually the upper and lower jaws preserved, shut together, occluded, mm. which is pretty awesome. But, um, yeah, one side is quite eroded so it'd been out in the elements cool so were some of those finger bones from the non-flight finger yeah correct yeah um so they're they're really small um unfortunately none of them are complete and unfortunately we didn't find any claws which would have been awesome but we don't have any claws but we do have like 40 teeth and tooth fragments not including the ones that are also preserved in the jaw so i mean yeah that's a lot of teeth it is quite a lot of teeth (laughs) What kind of teeth do pterosaurs have? So pterosaurs like this one had um, long spike-shaped teeth and some of them have a slight curve about them. And then there are other groups that are edentulous. That means they don't have any teeth at all. Um, And that includes like Asdarkids and Tapaharids. And yeah, they're quite weird and wonderful. But some of them are more better known from the late Cretaceous, whereas this specimen's sort of from like early to mid Cretaceous. Gotcha. So was it fish eating, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the pterosaur, this new species, Ferrodraco, belongs to a group called the Ornithochiroidae. That's a, like a big inclusive group. And depending on who you talk to, like there are different ways of synonymizing it or grouping it together or splitting it. Yeah. Members of this group likely ate fish. And although a lot of that has sort of been speculative before, there was a really good study by Beswick and they, yeah, did a big, big look at all of the potential um, dietary niches that pterosaurs occupied. So I would recommend checking that one out. Cool. Hmm. How did you come up with the name? Um, It was something I agonized over for quite a long time um, because, I mean, there's nothing worse than getting to name a new species and then just totally stuffing it up and (laughs) having that haunt you for, uh, you know, who knows how many years. Um, So I actually was pretty nerdy about it and I had an Excel spreadsheet and then if I was stuck on whatever I was supposed to be working on that day, I'd sort of just put new entries in and randomize things. We actually had a nickname for the specimen first, so rather than calling it AODF-876, um, we tend to call it Butch. Uh, so it's nicknamed after the former mayor of the Winton Shire, Butch Lenton. Um, he was a great supporter of aged dinosaurs. He was just so wonderful for Winton, um, and it was really great to honour him. So we sort of had the species name pinned down for um, Lenton I for his surname, and then um, yeah, I, I just thought it was so amazing that the specimen is preserved as it is. So it's three-dimensionally preserved. Pterosaurs can often get flattened because their bones are hollow. So even though you have beautiful uh, specimens preserved, say, from China, they can be absolutely flat 
and you know quite hard to interpret in many ways. Uh, but this one is three dimensional, quite sturdy and robust as well. Like it was quite easy to um, handle and study the bones mm. uh, because they're preserved in ironstone. So I just wanted to give a nod to that. And then when I sort of yeah put Pharaoh, Iron, and um, Dragon Draco together, and then you know looked at it all together, Lenten's Iron Dragon. I just went yeah. That's the one. And it wasn't taken as well. But I understand it's maybe like a Minecraft reference. Oh, really? I'm not, I'm not a big Minecraft. I'm more like a Legend of Zelda kind of girl. But uh, yeah. <laughs> There's some sort of like iron dragon in Minecraft well, or something? No, I think we looked at it because we looked at it in Melbourne. Um, I'm just looking at Steve, my supervisor. <laughs> um, and he was like, oh, well, it hasn't been used before. Like, it'll be fine. But, um, yeah, originally I wanted to spell it with a U and then you wanted to spell it with an O. And then I talked to Harry, one of the co-authors on this paper as well, and he wanted to spell it with an O. I'm like, if that's what everyone's going to do, I'll just go with it. <laughs> um, because, yeah, one of the things I suppose that I'm sort of passionate about through being like a guide at Age of Dinosaurs is that the names are sort of accessible for people and they're easy to say because there's nothing worse than feeling really stupid because you can't pronounce something correctly or whatever. So, True. yeah. And that's also where the nicknames come in. The nicknames yeah. are great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it just makes you stick in your memory a bit better. So. I think that's the only museum we've been to where, like, literally every specimen has a nickname. Yeah. Well, I think Aramanga do the same thing as well. <laughs> so you'll um, get to see Cooper and or oh, Zach. Yeah. And yeah, they have stories um, behind each of the names, same as we do at Age of Dinosaurs. So nice. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted, would want to add about the find or yeah, the discovery? Um, yeah, what's really uh, interesting about this specimen is that we can sort. It sort of gives us a bit of an idea about where our Australian pterosaurs sit compared to the world, and it was really tempting to kind of look at it and be like, "Oh, they're very similar to those from South America." Uh, but then when we did a phylogenetic analysis, it turns out that our specimens are more closely related to those from England, material from the Cambridge Greensand specifically, which is quite fragmentary material which was a bit of a surprise to me because I'm like, oh, we have this, you know, partial skeleton, you know, we'll have more characters. But uh, no, it was saying that these fragmentary skulls that were just literally the tip of the front of the upper jaw um, were more closely related to ours. But yeah, I guess just goes to show that pterosaurs at this time were cosmopolitan. They could disperse <laughs> across continents quite easily. And uh, yeah, it's not the trend that we're sort of seeing emerge from our uh, terrestrial vertebrates during this time cool it's good to know yeah. yeah after you know years of speculation and um and yeah anyone can see the specimen it will be on permanent public display at the australian age of dinosaurs and we don't have many casts at all um so yeah you actually get to see the real bones which um yeah is something i wish more museums would do oh yeah yeah that was really great to see today yeah I think I forgot to mention how big the wingspan was for this oh, pterosaur sure. as well. So it's about four meters, um, which is, you know, quite big compared with uh, modern day birds. But it's not it's not the biggest member of this group by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, it's about how big it would have been. Cool. cool. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go? Adele Pentland on Twitter. Um, otherwise, you can find me on ResearchGate. I'm Adele Pentland there as well. Awesome. Great, thank you. And also, just want to give you a, a big thanks for doing this in front of a mini live audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've been very kind to me and have been heckled. Too bad. <laughs> awesome. 
thanks, Adele, for chatting with us about the pterosaur. Uh, as you know, we are not terribly familiar with pterosaurs, but <laughs> it was really cool to see Butch up close. Yeah, that was it was a nice surprise. Yeah. When you visit the Australian Age of Dinosaurs, you take a tour and they'll take you to the fossil prep room and they'll point out a bunch of really cool specimens. Yeah. And Butch is kind of on the end. So it could be easy to miss if you're not paying attention, but make sure you go over there if you're interested in seeing it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Magyarosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was a dwarf sauropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Romania. It was found in the San Petru Formation, although when it was found, that area was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's a clue for how old the discovery is. (laughs) Yes, 1800s. So it's estimated to be about 19.6 feet, 6 meters long, and weighed about 1.1 tons. It had dermal armor that were unique in shape and size. And that's why there are some fossil eggs that have been found that they think might belong to Magyarosaurus because of this unique dermal armor. No skulls have been found, though. So it was an insular dwarf. It lived on this island. It had limited food and not really any large predators. So it was smaller than other sauropods. It didn't have to grow large for protection. The type species is Magyarosaurus dacus. Originally, it was called Titanosaurus dacus, but then Frederick von Huhn renamed it to Magyarosaurus dacus in 1932. And then he also named two more species, Magyarosaurus hungaricus and Magyarosaurus transylvanicus. The genus name means Magyar lizard, and that comes from the word Magyar, which is a tribe of people who settled in Hungary in the 9th century. It's a cool word. It is. I may be pronouncing that wrong, but anyway, the species name refers to the Doxians who lived there about 2,000 years before. At least 10 individuals of Magyarosaurus have been found. Franz Baron Nopsch's younger sister, Ilona, found the dinosaur fossils in their estate in 1895 around the same time that dwarf mammals had been found on a Mediterranean island. So this led Franz to hypothesize the dinosaurs were dwarfs. And he was the first to suggest island dwarfism for Magyarosaurus, though some scientists thought that the fossils he'd found were just juveniles. In 2010, a team of paleontologists studied the histology of Magyarosaurus and found the specimens were adults and that the sauropod was an island dwarf. They collected 21 samples from 19 different sized individuals, and then they cut them up to look at the microstructure of the bones. And they found that all the individuals were adults, and they were between 95 and 99% of their maximum size. 
Wow. That's surprising that they were all adults because a lot of times we see juveniles fossilized. Yeah. It's also cool that they found 19 individuals. It's a pretty good sample. Yeah, that's true. And that's good for this kind of study. So Magyarosaurus had a high metabolism, but a pretty slow growth rate. So the 2010 team found that the island that Magyarosaurus lived in was about 80,000 square kilometers, and it was part of a number of islands that's now Central Europe. Not all dinosaurs on the island, it's Hateg Island, were dwarves, but it's unclear why Magyarosaurus and a few other dinosaurs then were so small. There is no record of any large predators found on the island. Could be a clue. Yes, could be. The team also mentioned the species Magyarosaurus hungaricus was probably a separate species from Magyarosaurus docus, but it was out of the scope of their study to do a full description. But the reason they think Magyarosaurus hungaricus is a separate species is because it's bigger than the type species. It's not clear if these larger bones come from a dinosaur that swam to the island from the mainland or if it came from large ancestors of Magyarosaurus. In 2001, fossil eggs were found, and they were assigned to Nemectosauridae and considered to be possibly Magyarosaurus docus or Titan, though Magyarosaurus may be more likely. The Hateg Basin was a large dinosaur nesting area in the late Cretaceous. It's hard to identify which species the eggs belong to, though, so it's been associated with hadrosaurs and titanosaurs. In 2012, Gerald Grellet Tinner and others looked at 11 fossilized egg clutches and they found that they belonged to Nemectosauridae. And these were the first described set of well-preserved complete titanosaur egg clutches from the area, which helped shed some light on reproduction and insular dwarfism. The fact that there's 11 egg clutches instead of 15, like has been found in other nests, may mean that part of this island effect is to decrease the number of eggs per clutch instead of reducing the egg size or changing the structure of the eggshells. That's weird. The body gets smaller, but the eggs stay the same size? Yeah. Then I guess if you don't have to produce as many eggs. Hmm. So one specimen from the clutch had tissue preservation, and the team found dome-shaped features over a thickened area of skin. And based on what we know about modern crocodiles, these dome-shaped features were found to be dermal papillae, which is the uppermost layer of the dermis. The presence of these domes is consistent with the osteoderms that Megyarosaurus has. So why they think maybe these are Magyarosaurus eggs. And the comparison to crocodiles makes sense since they also have osteoderms. Mm -hmm. Magyarosaurus lived in a somewhat humid environment with rainy seasons, and it was closely related to Repetosaurus, Nemetosaurus, Malawisaurus, and Trigonosaurus. Other animals that lived around the same time and place include the small hadrosaurid Telmatosaurus, which is another dwarf dinosaur, the dwarf ornithopod Zalmoxus, the small notosaurid Sterthiosaurus, and manoraptorans, pterosaurs, and euornithopods, as well as turtles and dromaeosaurids. And our fun fact of the day is that many dinosaur groups appear to have used their heads as radiators to cool off. Fun. Yeah, so this study was published in the Anatomical Record by W.M. Rucker porter and Lawrence M. Wittmer. And we've talked previously about how ankylosaurs had bony head blocks, and because of that, they needed a lot of brain cooling, and they needed to use a lot of blood vessels around their nasal passages in order to cool down their blood so they didn't overheat. But this study also looks at a couple other dinosaurs, including Camarasaurus, which, like ankylosaurs, had a lot of extra blood vessels around its nasal passages. But unlike ankylosaurs, it also had a bunch of extra blood vessels around the roof of the mouth and kind of the sides of the mouth. 
And that means that it was possibly panting like a dog, <laughs> sort of cooling off the inside of its mouth. And then the warm blood would go to that area and cool down, and then it could make it back to the brain and other parts of the body as more cool blood. They also looked at Majungasaurus, and they found a large sinus in front of the eye, which seemed to have a lot of extra blood supply to it which is kind of weird because it's sort of in the middle of the head. But then they figured maybe that area could fill with air when it opened and closed its mouth and it could kind of pump in new cooler air and cool off this blood pocket <laughs> in this fenestra by sort of opening and closing its mouth. And that made me visualize it chasing down prey and then, you know, warming up its body by all this extra motion and then chomping its mouth <laughs> in order to cool down its body so it didn't overheat. And then it's almost like a cartoony thing chomping after it, you know, looking extra aggressive. But in all three cases, the cooled blood can quickly go to the brain, which is really important because the brain is sensitive to heat, so it's good to have it near the coolest blood possible. Interestingly, they looked at Stegoceras, but that one didn't emphasize the head radiator technique. Instead, since it had a small body, they said it could dissipate heat elsewhere, even though its brain was completely surrounded by bone. You know, it could just cool off the blood in another method, and then the brain would still get cool blood. And as Whitmer told Fizz.org, quote, small dinosaurs could have just run into the shade to cool off, end quote. Whereas if you're an ankylosaur or a jungosaurus or a camarasaurus. There's no shade. No, there's no shade big enough. You're going to eat the shade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, in some cases, yeah. <laughs> or you're too slow to get to it reasonably quickly. Or you have to eat constantly so yep. you can't be spending too much time in the shade. It was pretty cool that they had all these different mechanisms for cooling off their brain in the super hot environments. And with all that extra body weight and insulation keeping the heat in. So it happens when you have so much time to evolve. <laughs> you find all these great ways to cope. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you'd like to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash I Know Dino. And if you're listening very carefully, you can hear the heavy rain in the background <laughs> yeah. this episode. The first rain of the rainy season in California. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.